0: Please remain standing and turning your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 9 through 11, 1, 9 through 11. Before I read this word, let us go again humbly before our God, asking for his help. Our Father, would you please show us through this word how we are to live, show us Lord Christ. In His love for us, and His wisdom that we need. In His name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Hear now the word of God. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Puritan William Gurnall, in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, writes a lot about prayer. And one of the memorable picturesque statements that he makes about prayer is that prayer is the child of faith. As the child comes out of the womb crying out, so prayer is faith's child crying out to God. Paul here, a son of his father in heaven, and always a child with faith cries out in prayer to his God, to his father. Soon he will remind the Philippians again who they are in Christ. Soon he will exhort them to godly piety to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. But for now, right here, these verses, it's time for him to bow his head and to put his pen to papyrus for a brief prayer. Now, these verses are brief, but they are very bold. And let us not think that a child cannot be bold, however small. Parents know bold, small children. With this short prayer... Paul prays as a bold child. He prays big because he is praying to our big God, our God who is infinite in wisdom. And with this prayer from Paul for the Philippians, we are let into prayers or Paul's prayer closet so that we might also pray this prayer for ourselves and for one another. The point here this morning from this text is, with the affection of Christ Jesus, we pray for one another with full confidence and for the glory of God. Look again with me at verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. As we kneel humbly in prayer with Paul, we hear his bold prayer for things. What is he praying for? Well, he prays for love first, then knowledge, then all discernment. You could say he prays for love and wisdom. But what is love? Now, as we remember from our ABF lesson in January, we are covering what love is in 1 Corinthians 13 this month and uh, carry on through March. One way of understanding love is to define it as the giving of oneself for the good and the delight of another. Love is not having all of the feels for one another. It's not devoid of feeling, obviously. But we don't reduce love to feelings. Sometimes the butterflies aren't flying anymore. Maybe their wings have been clipped. Love is not the stuff of Disney princesses. I'm sorry to say this. We we love the Disney movies, don't we? But the princess and the love and all that... Not exactly the biblical conception of love, though there are notable exceptions. Anna's love for Elsa, for instance, is commendable. But I digress. Although God is love, love is not God. Love is not being personality test compatible. You can't Say, for instance, if you are really into the Enneagram, well, I am a, a one on the Enneagram. That is to say I'm a perfectionist. I am, and so I'm most compatible with a two because twos respect my sense of justice and duty. And I can enjoy a two's emotional warmth. And so that's real love, compatibility of one and two on the Enneagram cycle or whatever it's called. Now, love is not five languages. That's the Five Love Languages book. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Sorry to burst that bubble. Love is not five languages. It's more, and we can't reduce it to those five expressions of love. And some will say, well, I love to receive gifts. I love to give gifts. And so giving gifts is love to me. And if I don't get a gift, well, then that person must not love me. No, that's not love. Love is John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that everyone who believes on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's love expressed, John 3.16. And here, Paul is speaking not about our love for God, primarily, but about our love for others, our love for one another. That's his focus here. That's why he is praying that we would have love for one another. Obviously, our love for one another is grounded in God's love for us. We don't love him, we don't love one another, if God does not love us first. But here, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to love what is good and to love one another. And so, love is necessary, but love with wisdom. Yes, love, but love and truth. And that is because love is not blind. Sorry, Person, another bubble. Love is not blind. Love sees. Love has insight. In order to see, we need insight. In order to see, we need light. We need vision from God above. And now some of us will say, well, I'm I'm more of a a truth person than a relational person. That's what I incline towards. I, I I just want the facts. I don't care so much about the relationship. I just want the truth. Just tell me the truth, and I'll just tell you the truth. And And I'll just give it to you. And sometimes this person, and I might incline to this at times, we think that being blunt is a virtue. Hey, you can't fault me. I'm just telling you the truth. just telling you as it is. Well, it's important to focus on truth. But others will say, well, truth is important, but I prefer relationships to cold, hard facts. I'm more of a relationship kind of person. And those are the truth people. That's a false dichotomy, isn't it? The truth is, dear saints, us, we who are in relationship to God and in relationship to one another, we need both truth and love. We need to be both truth people and love people, relationship people. David Strain, in his commentary, says the danger of truth without love is coldness and ruthlessness, and an impatience with one another's sin. The danger of love without truth is a sentimental inclusiveness that fails to draw biblical boundaries around what is right. We need to affirm both, don't we? We need to affirm, on the one hand, facts don't care about your feelings, in the spirit of Ben Shapiro. But also, I care about you. I care about the truth, and I care about you. We need truth and love. And that's why Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians Speak the truth in love. Be truth people and be love people. Be all about the truth. Jesus, after all, says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. But also be about love. God is love. And we see God being love most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. And how out of love, The Father sent His Son. Out of love, the Son came. He was sent. And out of love, the Spirit is poured into our hearts. So we need to be about truth and love. And to love well, to be wise, we need knowledge. We need knowledge of God's will for us found in His revealed Word in these 66 books of the Bible. And here, when He's talking about knowledge in verse 9, He's not talking about some Gnostic version of knowledge, some class of knowledge that is just for the elite, like the super elect. Okay, you got the elect, but then you have the inner circle of the elect. That's not what he's getting at. There isn't that kind of parsing out, special knowledge. He's not talking about some expression of divine insight that is for some Christians, but it isn't for others. He's talking about knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen for all of life, in all things. He's speaking about discernment as well. His prayer for us all is that we have love with discernment, that we have love with wisdom. And this word discernment means to perceive someone or to perceive something very clearly and so to understand the nature truly. It also has a moral connotation, that is to say, it's... Insight, it's applied insight to the stuff of moral evil or moral wrong, to know between good and evil. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for instance, this word is used in Exodus 28, verse 3. God gave Bezalel, Oholiab, and the other tabernacle workers a spirit of, quote, skill. That's the word here. And that spirit of skill was used to make Aaron's priestly garments and the tabernacle furnishings. And we see this word all over the place in the book of Proverbs. This word speaks of true knowledge. In Proverbs 1.7, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 2.10, there is a need for wisdom in our heart and knowledge in our soul, their heart and soul acting synonymously, and wisdom and knowledge acting synonymously as well. So Paul is praying for love, praying for knowledge, discernment, praying for love with wisdom for these Philippian saints. What he's saying is, I want you all to understand the truths of this letter, these four short chapters, understand the truths of these letters, and make sound application of these truths to your daily life and in all of your relationships with one another. And that's his message to you today as well. Know these truths, know the Word of God, and apply this Word in your daily life. In a word, Paul wants all of us to know the Word of God and to love others as God has loved us. That's an earth-shattering message. That's what we are about. That's what we Christians ought to be about, to love God's Word and to love God's people. Paul prays for love. He prays for knowledge, for discernment. But he prays for more of it. He prays for plenty more of it. If you're in a relationship and by that I mean any kind of relationship with a human I'm not talking about your fond relationships with chickens or bunnies or cats. If you're in a relationship with a human, there is a difference between what is said and what is heard. You know this? Or are you always perfectly communicating to someone and that person's always perfectly understanding? you. If a wife, for instance, says to her husband, I need you to listen to me, he can reply in at least one of two ways. I am listening, my dear. Come on, give it to me. Tell me. Or, what, do you think I'm not listening? What kind of husband do you think I am that I would fail to listen to you, my wife, the wife of my youth, my beloved?" You must think I'm a nasty husband. How dare you think that of me? Okay, so two different responses, right? Maybe the wife says, I wasn't assuming that at all. I just, I just have something to tell you. Just want you, just want to tell you something. And sometimes we get into a conflict because we're assuming motives. We're assuming something. And sometimes we tell people to do things. And they mistakenly assume that we're telling them to do these things or to know these things because we don't think they know them or because we think they don't do them. But this is not what is going on here with Paul. In Paul's prayer for the Philippians, he knows it. None of them, in other words, could rightly object as he's praying, whoa, 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 Paul, stop your prayer right there. I know you're praying to our God, our Father in heaven, but let's get something straight here. Are you saying that we don't know the truth, Paul? Paul? are you saying that we don't love one another? If they actually objected to that, he would say, no, I'm not actually saying that at all. I know you love. I know you have truth. I know you have discernment. I know you are wise. Love is present. Knowledge is present. Discernment is present. I'm just praying for more of it. I'm just praying that you would know it More, that you would love more, that you would be more discerning, more wise. That's what I'm praying for. So calm down. All of this is present. It's just not perfect. So he is praying that all of this would abound. He said, I want your love cup to overflow for God and for one another. I'm praying that your knowledge would abound, that you would be especially knowledgeable and discerning in matters of truth, rightness, wrongness. He's saying, I'm praying that you will not be satisfied when it comes to love and truth where you are right now in your life. That's a a godly discontentment. I hope none of us is content with our relationship, with our walk with the Lord right now. Because if you are content with that, what you're saying is, Yeah, I know enough. Yeah, I know God as well as I could. Yes, I love as well as I can. We're not saying that at all, are we? I hope not. That's a good kind of discontentment. That's not the kind of contentment that he is exhorting us to have in Philippians 4, which we'll get to soon enough. He said, I want you to abound. But It's more than that. Literally, it's more than that. He is being doubly emphatic here. Now, he uses the word more four more times in this letter. Just a couple verses later, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, what has happened to him has served to advance the gospel, to spread more the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 23, he says, departing and being with Christ is far better. The word there, far, is more. Just in English, we don't say more better. Unless we want to get a slap on the wrist from our English professors or parents. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, work hard, brothers, and much more in my absence. In chapter 3, verse 4, he says, I had more confidence in the flesh than anyone else ever had. So he uses the word more four more times. But of the 81 times that this word more is used in the New Testament, it's only duplicated here. That is, only once in all the New Testament do we have the phrase more and more. As we do here. There must be something that Paul's up to. He's saying, I'm not praying for you just to love. Of course I'm praying for you to love. I'm not praying for you just to love. I'm praying for you to abound in love. And I'm not praying for you just to abound in love. But I'm praying for you to abound more in love. And get this, I'm not praying for you just to abound more in love, but to abound more and more. That's what he's getting at. He's saying keep going, keep adding, keep ascending, keep growing. But someone sent me an article last night. A friend sent me an article called The Single Most Encouraging Thing for a Pastor. And as a pastor, I was interested. Got the you know, had the clickbait. I, I was baited. What is the single most encouraging thing for a pastor to hear? And before I read the article, I, I answered the question myself. And the, the pastor says three things it's not. It's not numbers. Believe it or not, I think, anyways, a faithful pastor's pr- most encouraging thing is not when there are more butts in the seats. Okay? Yes, more people can be a blessing. But more people are also, can also contribute to more problems because you got more sin, more dynamics, more complexities. Yes, numbers are helpful, they're encouraging, but they're not the most encouraging. Another thing it's not the most encouraging thing is loud singing. Sometimes we might gauge how well a service went by how loudly the congregation is singing. Wow, they're really into it. you see the joy of the Lord in, those, in that singing? They're into it. Maybe they're just really familiar with those songs. Maybe they're familiar and they like them. But the author here says, "Well, maybe everyone is in unison, and that's an indicator that nobody new is coming into the pews." Perhaps another thing is: it's not is attendance. Attendance is the bare minimum. So pastors, yes, are encouraged when people attend. Obviously, we want you to attend. That You want to attend. That's why you're here. You want to worship our great God and King, our Savior. But attendance is not the most encouraging thing for a pastor to hear. Well, I got the answer right. At least, my heart was what this pastor's heart was about which is what Paul is about, which is what Christ is about. The most encouraging thing for a pastor is your growth, is your spiritual growth. That is to say, your knowledge of Jesus Christ and of your love for him and one another. That is the most encouraging thing. Whenever I think of the congregation and what I'm praying for, what I get most jazzed about, is when I hear and see somebody coming into a greater, deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. Or when I see somebody truly repenting for what he or she had done. Confessing, and there's reconciliation. Or greater worship. That's what what I'm about. That's what Pastor Paul was about. That's what he's praying for. That's what pastors desire. So I don't say that so that you can really encourage me. It's not about pleasing me. It's encouraging. It's the most encouraging thing. But you do it to please the Lord. You grow in knowledge of the Lord because you want to know Jesus Christ as much as you can, as well as you can, as deep as you can. And you want to love him for his sake because he is lovely. And who's the pastor? Really, he's just some weak servant sharing the gospel that he desperately needs as well. It's a big prayer. Praying for love and knowledge and all discernment and more and more. So I told you, Paul's praying a very big prayer. And he's praying this for God to answer. Notice that Paul is not praying to the Philippians because he's not an idolater. He's praying to God for the Philippians. And those prepositions, two and four, are essential. We pray to God for one another. This prayer assumes the Philippians and our inabilities, the Philippians and our remaining weaknesses. We need this big prayer. We are not perfect in our love. We are not perfect in our knowledge. We are not perfect in our discernment. We, don't, we can't say, yes, I have all discernment. I have all knowledge. I've got all love. Can't say that. And even if we had a moment of perfect love, Just a moment of pristine knowledge, a moment of perfect discernment. If we had a moment of that, our perseverance wouldn't be perfect. We don't persevere in love and wisdom, do we? Not perfectly. We are tempted. We have the tendency not to press on, not to strive, but instead to be passive. The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Faithlessness is hard. Perseverance is a challenge. Growing in love for God, in love for one another, growing in truth, growing in knowledge and all discernment is a whole life experience and challenge. Love is not natural, but a supernatural gift. It is a grace from above poured into our hearts by Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, pray that you and others will grow in love, wisdom, and holiness. Like the Philippians, we all need to grow in love. There is no end to love. There is no point at which we say, we've arrived. There shouldn't be anyways. Can you imagine believing that? Can you imagine thinking that, saying that? You know, that's, in essence, what couples say that's how their lives show. That's what their lives show when they come in for couples counseling and one of them says, yeah, he's the problem. She's the problem. Okay, so you've done everything right. You, you didn't contribute anything to this conflict. No, I've been the most loving husband anyone could be. I'm like the Donald Trump of love. Okay. Okay. Of course nobody's going to say that. And this is not to say that some don't bear a greater responsibility or guilt when it comes to certain conflicts. But a marriage takes two, and there are two sinners. When sinners say, I do, is a great marriage counseling book. When sinners say, I do. So expect there to be sin. Expect then there to be the need for growing. None of us can say, yeah, I've looked at First Corinthians 13, and I've, I've taken the love test. I've put my name there where the word love is. Love is patient. Michael's patient. Love is kind. Michael is kind. And how I rate myself? I give myself well a ten out of ten. I look at all of those, and yes, I'm right there. I'm maximum love, maximum truth, maximum wisdom. Sometimes we act that way, and we essentially say that we've not done anything wrong. That there was no sense in which we have contributed to the problem. John Chrysostom says, there is no limit to love. One who loves and is loved in return does not want that love to stop but to increase. Now, when I lead new couples to their wedding day, for weeks they have declared how vast, how deep, how rich their love for the other is. And I don't challenge them on it. I don't say, yeah, I don't believe it. I don't do that. I take them at their word, but I also pray for more. I often pray for them that the love that they have for one another right now will pale in comparison to their love for each other in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of marriage. May this expression of love be the nadir, the lowest point, not the climax of your love for one another. And that's what Paul's praying for these Philippians. That's what we should be praying for ourselves. Maybe we do love one another very well. Can we grow? Of course. like the Philippians, we all need to grow in wisdom. Do you think that you have maxed out with wisdom? You get the height of wisdom. Say, "I'm the most wise of all the wise?" Of course not. How many of us look back at our younger selves and we say, "I wish I knew then what I know now." Because I would have done things differently. It's okay to regret things. Just use those regrets for the glory of God. Learn from them. And like the Philippians, we all need to grow in holiness. And to grow in holiness, we all need humility. How many of us, with humility, look back to how we conducted ourselves five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago? We see how we lived, we see how we spoke, how we thought, and we thank God for His slow but sure growth. we say, I know that I'm not the person I will be one day. I know I'm not the person I want to be even now, but I know that I am not the person I once was. I think it was in the morning worship when I gave an illustration of a particular uh, husband and wife relationship and uh, the, the leaders of this, of church had um, advocated for divorce, Julia, I think is the name I gave her. Is that right? Does that sound like a? Yeah, okay. this is a real person, not by not the real name. And I've been following this this relationship for the last number of months, and it's just one heartbreak after another. And just yesterday, there was an opportunity for the husband and wife to get together to uh, to come to the same room for a conciliation meeting. And the wife, after saying she was going to attend, refused. And there's evidence that um, she is going back to a, a past boyfriend, ex-boyfriend or so. But this morning, as, as I was um, getting things ready, I got an email from the husband and he said, here's a, here's a note I'm going to send my wife as a, as a last resort because she's not, going to speak, she's not speaking to me, but we you check this out? See if, see if I can add anything. And he's pleading with her, expressing his love for her, confessing his own sin that uh, he knows he had caused her great, great hurt. But one of the things he says in the email, this note, is, I'm not the man I was three months ago. I'm not going to be the same man six months from now. I won't be the same man a year from now. And how can he say that? How can he speak so confidently? It's because he has the Spirit of God indwelling him. He knows that he is a sinner. But he also knows that the Spirit hasn't left him, hasn't forsaken him, that Christ continues to work powerfully in and through him. However, this relationship shakes out. If it ends in the dissolution of the marriage, which seems to be the case. The Lord will work in him. That's the same kind of confidence we all should have for ourselves. Yes, God will continue to work in us. We will continue to grow in love, continue to grow in wisdom and in holiness. Surely we can say with Paul, as he says in chapter 3, verse 12 of this letter, not that I have already attained or am already perfect, Paul is one of those great apostles that we look up to, right? He even tells some of his readers, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. His conduct is exemplary. It is above reproach. It is godly conduct. Maybe some of us say, I wish I could could have the faithfulness, the courage, the boldness, the the commitment to truth, the, the love, that the tears that Paul has for these people what a standard to meet could I ever reach Paul and we forget there's an infinite chasm there's an infinite distance between Paul and Jesus Christ Paul loved Paul was wise Paul was holy but Christ is perfect he's God perfect love perfect wisdom perfect holiness so I think we can grow more and more. And we should be praying that we would abound and that one another would abound more and more with love and knowledge and all discernment. But how do we grow in love and wisdom and holiness? We start with big prayers like this to our infinite God. Why pray this prayer? What is Paul's endgame? What is he praying at? Verses 10 and 11. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray for abundant love and wisdom in order to approve what is excellent. To approve what is excellent is twofold. It is, on the one hand, to love the law of God, and on the other, to love the people of God. Romans 2.18 uses this word, excellent, to speak of how the Jews boasted in approving what is excellent, having been instructed in the law of God. They took great pride that they had the oracles of God, that they had the law of God. And it would have been great, Paul says, if you have it and you actually obey it. But actually having it and not obeying it puts you in a worse position than that of the Gentiles. You had the truth, and you rejected the truth. But it is excellent to be instructed in the law of God. In Luke 12, 7 and 24, Jesus tells us that we are of more value or of more excellence than the birds. Birds are beautiful. Image bearers are better. What is excellent is informed by the word of God, by the image of God. That is, you and I do not determine what is excellent according to our preferences, but according to God's prescription and design. You don't get to determine what you think is excellent. Your view of what is excellent is informed by your knowledge of the word of God. What God tells you is excellent. And God wants you to approve what he approves. God wants you and him to be on the same page when it comes to godliness, when it comes to approving what is excellent. Otherwise, we end up majoring on minors. We end up overlooking what really matters or who really matters. A love that excels is love for Christ, his word, and for all those that he bled and died for. Approving what is excellent is a reason for big prayers. So is purity. You approve what is excellent, and you get purity. The word pure here literally means to judge in the light of the sun. You wear glasses. Sometimes you think that you can see clearly with those glasses, and you may notice, you may not notice, rather, all those smudges, those spots, dust particles, until you go outside or until you lift, you put, until you raise your glasses to the, the light, the bright light. My glasses are bothering me right now because I see all of the dust, all of the stuff that's right here, and these are bright lights right in my glasses. And I see all the imperfections, and it drives me bananas. So what do we do? We Take them off, and we take a cloth, and we rub those imperfections out, and then there's greater purity. We can see more clearly. When you prove it is excellent, then your thoughts and your living are pure before God, Paul's prayer for the Philippians and our prayer for ourselves and for one another is that when the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, Jesus Christ, shines on us, then what is seen is a life intact. What is seen is a life pure. It is a prayer to God. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. That's what we are praying for when we pray this big prayer that we might be pure. Blamelessness is another reason for big prayers. You approve it as excellent, and you get blamelessness. And this word refers to the clear conscience that we can have because we do not give unjust offense. And that adjective is very important because there are times when we give offense and we shouldn't say no offense because sometimes we do rightly offend when we are committed to the truth and we speak the truth in love. That's a just offense. But oftentimes we do give unjust offense. We do cause people to stumble, or we ourselves stumble. And that's what this word can, can speak to. It means our not stumbling ourselves, our not falling into sin, or our not causing others to stumble or fall into sin. Our responsibility to help people be blameless before God. As we abound in knowledge and discernment more and more, we live according to the law of God. As we abound in love more and more, we prevent fewer and fewer stumbling blocks, stumbling offenses. As we lean upon Christ for all of life and godliness, Christ by His Spirit makes us more and more blameless before others. I'm not talking here about our justification, our standing before God. I hope you know that. That is certain. That is You can't get more perfect, more pure, more blameless than the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to our accounts if we trust in him. It's already at max capacity. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about being blameless in that kind of justification sense. Otherwise, nobody would be blameless on his own. What he's talking about is our godly conduct which is seen in relationships with one another. Remember, Paul's goal for all the churches that he writes to is that they would be spotless, without blemish, that they would be blameless at the day of Christ. And he is, as um, the, uh, the husband, if you will, in, this situ- in the relationship between uh, himself and the church, he is pre- trying to present this bride to the true husband. Jesus Christ. He's trying to present this bride spotless. And then there's the fruit of righteousness. When you approve what is excellent, you get the fruit of righteousness. Here, Paul is speaking about the fruit of righteousness, which is holiness. This is the life that is right with God. Having been justified, we now walk in holiness. Because of our union with Christ, our lives now bear righteous fruit, in keeping with repentance. We now have a, a holy harvest is coming out. David Strain in his commentary says, Christ is both the means and the end. That is to say, Jesus is the way, the means by which I become more and more holy in my conduct, but he's also the end. He's also the goal. My goal isn't to be anyone but Jesus. It's to be like Him. He is my Savior. He is the lover of my soul. I am dear to Him. He's precious to me. I want to be more like Him. All of these are beautiful reasons to be in constant prayer for yourselves and for one another. So why abound in love? Why more and more knowledge and discernment? Why approve what is excellent? Why be pure? Why be blameless? Why bear the fruit of righteousness? Why? We have the answer at the very end of this prayer, to the glory and praise of God. All of the above abundance isn't for ourselves, but for our Savior, Jesus Christ. What do we have that we were not first given? He made us. He saved us. He sustains us. He is working in us that which is pleasing. And so he gets all the praise. What good is love if it is not to the glory and praise of God? What good is knowledge if it is not to the glory and praise of God? What good is all discernment if it is not to the glory and praise of God? What good is approving what is excellent if it is not to the glory and praise of God? What good is being pure if it is not to the glory and praise of God? What good is being blameless if it is not to the glory and praise of God? What good is the fruit of righteousness, which is holiness, if it is not to the glory and praise of God? Nothing. That's what Paul says in First Corinthians 13. What does an adult child who is thankful for her upbringing say at her mom's birthday party? Or what does a son say on Father's Day to his dad who has raised him up in the Lord? Or what do we all say at family reunions or at wedding speeches or at... Funerals with tears of joy during those eulogies. What do we say at these important moments? We express thanks because of how our father or our mother showed us the way, never gave up on us, put in all that investment, and made us even a fraction of what they were in life. We say to everyone who has ears to hear, anything good you see in me it's because of mom. It's because of dad how much more so shall we give thanks and turn all glory and all praise to our Father in heaven? And so let us pray these big prayers to our big God because he deserves big praise, all the praise. Amen. O God, our Father in heaven, help us by your Spirit not to misuse or profane your holy teaching by wrongly interpreting its meaning or by neglecting its application. Instead, may this holy teaching build us up in the faith of Jesus Christ, so that we may always abide in him and be diligent in prayer and supplication. May our whole life, Father, be devoted to doing good and to helping our brothers and sisters with the goal of learning to grow more and more in the grace of our adoption, which you, O oh Father, daily confirm to us. We pray these things, Father, in the name of, our, in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.